Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, the Classroom Critics, our, uh, our quarantine edition. Um, <laughs> we normally uh, meet in person, but we are doing it uh, through Zoom, and um, I'm here at a, an office at a childcare that my wife and I, uh, I run, and I'm not in my usual place, um, and I'm joined with uh, Andrew Martino and Walt Freeman, as I usually am, and uh, tonight we're discussing... Um, we're discussing The Irishman, uh, Martin Scorsese, long, his long-awaited gangster epic. Um, I guess you can call it kind of a reunion film, right? Mm. Um, some call it the third part of a uh, of the gangster trilogy, uh, along with Goodfellas and Casino, um, starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and of course, uh, Al Pacino working with uh, Scorsese for the very first time, which is kind of <laughs> kind of mind-blowing, way overdue. Um, it was released in uh, November, late November of 2019, after a very limited theatrical release. We'll, uh, I'm sure, get to that. The very um, unique way it was brought to the public, and uh, you know, for me, I, definitely for for many film buffs, it was uh, a real event. And um, it, it, you know, I remember hearing about this a few years ago. It almost seemed uh, too good to be true. I remember actually hearing about this movie. Six seven years ago, and I guess it, it was in development hell for for a while. Um, but you know, when I saw it, I'll, I'll you know kind of put my opinion around the table. I I, I thought it was uh, it was well worth the wait. I, I really enjoyed this film. And um, but before I, I really get into um, you know the, the film itself, um, I don't know what you guys think. When did you first hear about this uh, this film and? Was there a lot of uh, buildup in your mind as we got closer or did it sort of kind of come out from nowhere for you? Um, for me, I, 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 like you, I heard about it for, for several years and I heard Scorsese couldn't get funding for it and, and things were happening. So, or he would do a film and say, this would be my next film. Uh, I'll get to it right after this film is finished. And, and then things seemed to fall together pretty quickly uh, once Netflix got involved. Um, and then it, it seemed to, for me, fall off the map for a while. I knew they were filming it. Some of the stills from the film uh, were being released. And then all of a sudden, the hype to it really built up that uh, the people involved, the players involved, um, I think did a marvelous job um, marketing the film itself. And, and like you, for me, it, it, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, it absolutely lived up to the hype. And I, uh, for me, I had heard about it and I think I had forgotten about it. And then it seemed to come out of nowhere, like come together rapidly. And there was just kind of a blitz and it was going to be dropped and released in a few theaters. And I loved it too. I had some, uh, I had some um, things I want to discuss about it. Uh, and, um, but, you know, just to see Martin Scorsese directing those three actors and apparently every Italian actor in Hollywood uh, was tremendous. What'd you guys think about, the idea of, um, you know, all our lives, big movie event, you know, and this is true, this holds true for many films that still come out, but the idea of not necessarily going to see it on the big screen, but waiting for it to stream on Netflix. Was that odd for you? Was that new? I mean, did it, um, I mean, I have yet to see this on the, on the big screen. I think it would certainly, um, be a different film and to some degree, but what do you think about it kind of being um, premiered on Netflix for most people? 
I think it dovetailed with Scorsese's complaint about the superhero movies and being these big carnival rides. I mean, that's where the money is and Hollywood's always followed the money. And so I think it's a statement on movies today that a director of Martin Scorsese's caliber with actors of these caliber in a genre that, you know, he's pretty much defined having to go to a streaming service for funding. Um, in an odd way though, I haven't seen this on the big screen, but much has been made about the de-aging process and how it looks. Um, I think it might've seeing it on a smaller screen might've actually helped that be less jarring. I, I didn't find it that much of a distraction because I was so happy to have those actors playing those roles, mm -hmm. but I think it might've actually helped it a little bit. I can imagine what it would look like, you know, watching De Niro's face in close up 15 feet high and going, Ooh, they didn't do that well at all. So I, I, I do would like to get to the, uh, the technology and, and kind of like the ethics of that. But, um, uh, you know, Andrew, did, did you, you saw this on Netflix for the first time? I did. Yeah. So I saw it on my, on my television, um, in my living room. Um, I would have loved to have seen it on the big screen. I love movies on the big screen and I like that communal aspect to go to seeing movies with strangers. Um, so there is something that I think we lose as an audience when we don't go to a theater to see a movie with people that we don't know. Uh, on the other hand, I'm really happy that the, that there are institutions like Netflix out there that will fund these films that might not otherwise get funding. Um, I like the superhero films. I think they're a lot of fun, um, but I absolutely agree with Scorsese and, and, and Francis Ford Coppola. I don't necessarily think that the cinema uh, in, in that kind of traditional sense. I don't think anybody will be, and I could be wrong about this, but I don't think anybody's gonna be talking about the Avengers Endgame in 25 years, and they may be talking about this film. Right. Um, I could be wrong about that, but um, perhaps I'm a, just a traditionalist. I think, um, yeah, I too saw it on Netflix. And, uh, you know, when you do go to the, the theater, you know, you, you know that there's going to be, you know, obviously, unless there's some sort of uh, disaster, you're not going to be interrupted. You're there for the entire duration of the film, um, you know, with perhaps the occasional visit to the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the snack bar or, uh, you know, the, the, the restroom. Yeah, you're, you're there, you know, that, that you're there. You're entirely devoted to seeing that film from start to finish. Um, for me personally, um, I was in, the, the, my viewing experience with the Irishman was was interrupted halfway. You know, I um, you know I would love to have three and a half hours uh, in my home to watch something from start to finish, but you know, with with kids, with right. a career, it's it's really tough to to make that happen. So um, I did watch it in two installments, and um, I kind of wonder if that changed, you know, the narrative at all. Um, I can only kind of speculate for that. That's one, you know, difference. There's always the threat of interruption when you're at home, you know, so that's always kind of in the back of your mind. You could pause at any time. Uh, you could, I mean, I've heard of people, you know, watching it in four installments, five installments. So that, I mean, that's just kind of an, perhaps a new reality when it comes to watching films, you know, for, for the wonderful, you know, work that Netflix is doing by funding such films. Uh, there is that, I guess, drawback. Mm -hmm. I wonder what it was about the Irishman that was not get, you know, why, what was holding back funding, uh, you know, uh, for that film, you know, what film, what, what companies were saying, you know what, Marty, I just don't see it. <laughs> I don't see people coming to say, I mean, why did Netflix green light it where other companies didn't? Uh, that's that's a great question and I, I think you know when we find the answer to that we, we we discover a lot about Hollywood and and its 
it's what's making it move today. Um, the fact that somebody, a big studio, wouldn't give Scorsese the green light to do this is, to me, astounding, of, of all people. It's not a, a first-time director coming with an idea. Um, it's, it's Martin Scorsese. Um, and it, it, I think it tells us a lot about how cinema is changing today. And, you know, I can only say in my very um, unprofessional opinion that it's at the whims of the market and yeah. they're going to go with whatever is, is selling today. And as, as a result of that, we do get some great movies, um, but we, there's a lot of movies that we don't get um, that could be great. Well, you can see it. They're, they're going to get the idea or the proposal or the pitch and they're going to turn to an actuary. Yeah. And say what you know? What's this going to make versus what we invest in it? And you yeah. know, it, it's not. And so, I mean, it's frustrating. It yeah. does. It comes. It comes to this point where they're they're putting metrics against art, and you know, they're going with metrics, right? Whatever the data tells us is where we're going to go. And and I know I'm of the belief that data should never um, dictate what art is or what art isn't. Um, I think we'll, as a civilization, will be poor for it. Right. Yeah. You think of the investment in time, uh, not time, excuse me, in money just to go to the movies these days mm -hmm. from the audience standpoint, you know, you're going to drop 150 bucks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's how many people would see it. Right. It's a different thing. A three and a half hour movie is a commitment. I mean, if you're going to the theater to see that, you know that you're not going to get the, the large Coca-Cola. Uh, and, and sit through that, that three and a half hour movie with that if you, if you don't want to get up. Yeah, if, if you know, uh, theaters like to turn out customers and, and you know, um, a three and a half movie means, uh, you know, they're going to be there longer for the same price. And, uh, and if you think about it, it's a, um, it's a different kind of gangster film, which, you know, mm -hmm. getting to the movie itself, um, it's kind of a confessional, right? It's, it's not... Uh, yeah. It's very different from Casino in that respect, where it's a uh, it's a more retrospective kind of uh, kind of film. Um, so you know, let's kind of start with the narrative, the the way it, way it's told. It's um, if I'm not mistaken, it's it's a frame frame within a frame story. If you think about it, right? So it starts off, you know, with in a very Scorsese kind of uh, steady cam uh, classic kind of shot. He goes into the the retirement home and down several hallways through some common areas. And then we see, uh, we see De, Niro, uh, De Niro's character, uh, Frank Sheeran, and he turns the camera and starts narrating. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a very Scorsese kind of uh, technique. You know, I, most of his films are, are narrated by one of the characters or, or several of the characters. And, uh, the character of Frank turns to the camera, uh, breaks that fourth wall, and, and basically starts talking about a, an earlier time, a couple decades before. Um, and then, from that point, um, it harkens to an earlier period. So it's kind of like a frame within a frame. And the um, Russell, that you know, they're, they're taking that car ride, that car trip, and uh, Frank turns to Russell at one of the cigarette stops, and, and they look, they're looking at this uh, this gas station where they first first met and there you go there's the there's the flashback that goes into uh much earlier in their uh in their life so what do you think about that um that's what do you think about that choice of, of telling the story in that manner there's it's uh you know it's it's a very scorsese kind of uh, approach but what do you think about the the narrative uh voiceover narrative feel that 
Scorsese often does. It, it kind of sucks me, and I, I really enjoy that approach. What about you, Andrew? I like it. Um, I, I, there, there's sometimes that, that it, it, it feels formulaic to me when I see other directors um, do something similar. But with Scorsese, this, for me, this worked. Um, it was something that I expected. As you, as you mentioned just now about that first shot, that establishing shot, it's, it's wonderfully Scorsese, although it's a bit smoother. If you watch his earlier movies, it's a very sort of almost John Cassavetes-like, right? That he's walking down the hall with the camera, but this is much smoother. Um, and everything from the music, right? That, that is setting that particular stage for that particular moment. What I like about Scorsese is, is he's, telling, he's telling a whole story, but he's doing it in moments. And he's, he's taking individual moments and he's kind of building a mosaic um, from those particular moments. Right, right, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I do view this film, you know, what will probably get, sorry, it's a little Zoom pop-up came at me there, clicked it off. Um, you know, once we get towards the end of uh, the film, I'm sure we'll have more to say about this, but um, I kind of view it as a, as a confession in a way. And it's based on the, uh, on the book by Charles Brandt called I Heard You Paint Houses from 2004, which reports on this um, basically deathbed confession by Frank Sheeran, mm -hmm. uh, who says, who makes the claim that he killed uh, Jimmy Hoffa. And, I don't know, I find, it's, you know, I've heard some people kind of, uh, they're critical of, of, of the, uh, the book itself, saying it can't be true, there's no way, it's, it's a lie. Um, and if that is true, do we view this as historical fiction? As you were watching this, did you view it as, as history, uh, as um, just some sort of dubious confession? When you went into this, did you have any idea about the, um, the factual nature of it? Was there anything in your mind? Uh, personally, I knew nothing about the movie um, other than who directed it, who was in it, and that it was a gangster film when I sat down to, to watch this. I didn't even know that, um, I, I purposefully did not look into it. I just, I kind of wanted to approach it with extremely fresh uh, eyes. I didn't even know that Al Pacino was gonna play Jimmy Hoffa. I didn't even know, I didn't know it was even in the, uh, the narrative at all. Um, how'd you come to this movie in terms of your, your knowledge about it, its history? I, I, you know, I had known it was based on the book and the book had been widely criticized, but I just think Scorsese was filming the story. You know, I, so I looked at it as a piece of historical fiction. I'm going to set this narrative, <clears throat> excuse me, against a backdrop of very real characters. And, you know, one thing that told me that he was filming the story more than history was he didn't really go for you know, actual look, the guy playing Bobby Kennedy looked almost nothing like Bobby Kennedy. And it didn't matter. Uh, it, you know, he, his role stayed the same in the story. So I don't think Scorsese was interested in whether it was true or not. I think he was just trying to capture the flavor. <clears throat> Can I go back real quick? You, you had uh, mentioned about the structure. Of course. Uh, to me, the opening and the way it was structured reminded me of the Odyssey, which, you know, starts in the middle, goes to a certain, goes back, goes back to that middle point and then goes forward. Yeah. And to me, uh, he chose that format to say this is an epic. I, I think another director filming this would have abstracted the story to maybe just focus on the time with Hoffa. But Scorsese says this is an epic. I'm doing, I'm doing yeah. the whole life. 
Yep. And, and that's what that f- format allowed for. Anyway, sorry, I wanted to get back to, uh, yeah. to that. I think it's historic fiction. Sure, sure. It's interesting because I, I, I've read and, and I've seen the, uh, the Netflix special with the actors after that, where they're talking about the, the, the filming of this. And, and um, De Niro has gone on record saying that he, this is the uh, kind of, this is the, the, the version he subscribes to. Um, that he thinks that, you know, this is probably as close as we'll come to discovering what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Um, I, I look at it as, 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 as Walter does, as this is one director's point of view of what could possibly happen. Um, I think when we start getting into this is, you know, Scorsese making a statement, that, that, that gets into dangerous territory. Um, and I, I think it's, it's the possibility of what could have happened. Uh, at a particular time. What I really like about this, and this goes back again to what what Walter was saying, it's very mythological, and it's specifically American uh, mythology that we're talking about. Um, Not only in terms of the gangster aspect of it, but the Jimmy Hoffa aspect. Um, One of the things I like about Scorsese so much is that he's really doing American history, but that kind of, it's the the underbelly of American history. He's telling those stories that that aren't not necessarily... um, positive to tell but nevertheless it's very american i find this a very american story that he's telling and it's very close in terms of structure to as you quite rightly said to to the greeks um and and i think it harkens back to the greek tragedies to be honest what do you think about frank sharon as as a narrator um i it kind of prompts a question for me if it is a bunch of bs you know if if this is really not how it went down. Um, why, why do we have every so often these people who um, make these, just these deathbed confessions that are just absolute nonsense? You know, I mean, I don't know, dozens of people have confessed to the JFK assassination on their deathbeds. Uh, what would prompt this, uh, this lie? Well, the, film, the film seems to go out of its way to show that he did not make a deathbed confession because the two feds are talking to him at the end. They're all gone. You know, who are you protecting now? And he's like, I'm not, I got nothing to say. Yeah. Um, if, if this was, you know, following that, then there would have been in his life a scene afterwards where he does make this confession, but Scorsese chose not to show it. Right. That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. True. I think I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think that, um, we all try to make myths out of our lives, right? We're, we're in, in, in a real sense, and this goes back to David Copperfield, we are the heroes of our own lives. So Frank is the hero of his life. Um, so he is the center of that particular life. So the story that he's telling, it, it would be obvious to me that he's telling it from his point of view, where he is the hero. And again, we, we have to use that term very loosely, yeah. um, but he's nevertheless the hero. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know. But he's such a he's an interesting character because obviously he's uh, sociopathic. I mean, is that can we go that far? Is he? He's, he's obviously right. Yeah. He's he's uh, for what he is. He's a cold blooded killer. Um, but if we're talking about narrative theory, he's absolutely an unreliable narrator. Mm. That we have to take everything he says with a grain of salt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I saw him, um, the, for me, the, the arc of his story in terms of how he got to be, you asked, you know, was he a sociopath? We see him in the war being ordered to execute unarmed prisoners. And he does it 
And then he shoots them again because you can imagine they, the first shot didn't kill them. And, and so he's legally being told to do this. And you have to imagine it wasn't the first time and he went on to see other horrors. So he comes back to society with back then what was not recognized as PTSD. And to him, killing, the only way that he can maybe psychologically rectify in his mind, killing is, is something that he can do emotionlessly is because it was once the thing he was ordered to do. And if, you know, it, therefore it becomes a moral choice. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not forgiving his choices. Plenty of people went through PTSD and didn't turn into sociopathic killers. But if you watch the story after he gets back from the war, most of the film, he's fairly emotionless. I mean, you can see his, when his loyalty is tested and his anxiety about killing Hoffa, but the scene that he only lets his emotion really show through is when his daughter got pushed by the grocer and he goes into a rage and after that, we, we never see that again when he's committing acts of violence. And so I think to him, in his mind, he's rectified that the only way I can do this is to emotionally detach myself from what I do. Otherwise, that makes me a bad guy. I think that's an excellent point. And I also think that it, it really speaks to what the film is saying in, in its biggest level, right? Which is, be a good worker. And he says this over and over again, especially at the beginning of the film. It was just a job. I had a job to do from being a soldier all the way to being this kind of hitman that he becomes, he's just doing a job. And if we follow that logic, then that leads us straight to somebody like Eichmann, right? Who was just, I, you know, I was told to do this. I was just doing, following orders in that sense. To me, this corresponds wonderfully, and I didn't even think about this till you mentioned it, Walters, is the fact that Hoff is this union guy, right? Who's saying that we're workers, we're kind of in this together, but we can only be in this together if we all do our job. So it, it really takes the individual individuality out of it, in a sense. So this makes me ask the question, and I'm interested to hear what, what you guys have to say. Do you think that maybe this is Frank's way of kind of absolving himself of, of the sins that he committed, from the murder all the way down to the, the type of father and husband he was? Yeah, he, he never kills anybody on his own initiative. Yeah. And so he's ordered to do it, and therefore the blame, I guess, is not on him. Right, right. Well, you mentioned, what about the emotion? Wouldn't you say that he shows um, a degree of an emotion? I can think of two other places when he was on the phone with Hoffa's wife. Um, it seemed very painful for him to, you know, just kind of lay, you know, lay it on that lie, you know, as, as he's asked point blank, do you have any idea what happened to him, where he is? And he had to... Uh, lie you know and it seemed it seemed very painful to him so um you know he didn't break down and cry or anything but he he definitely seemed um you know in pain over that and what about the other one where uh he sees his daughter in the uh in the bank yeah that's so bad that's so rough yeah. well there, and then there's also at the end when the i forget who asked him do you feel any remorse do you feel anything for these people and he can't he can't articulate a response yeah, he seems to be just someone who's who's you know numb, you know, or he tries his best to be numb. But there are points where uh, you know um, there is pain. You know, it's just very interesting that we feel for him. Uh, at least I did. You know, it's it's. I guess it takes a filmmaker like Scorsese to, and I don't think Scorsese is trying to get us to necessarily. Uh, feel a lot of sympathy for him or, um, 
or feel too much from, but we, we do, you know, he, he somehow gets us to at least care a little bit um, or at least be interested in him or in his fate or are kind of looking at him as a, as a character study. And, but um, I don't know, is there, am I in the minority here? Did, did I, was I the only person who felt a little bit for him? You know, I don't, feel too much sympathy for the guy. You know, I mean, I, I think that him being alone, his daughter turning his back on him at the end was, uh, his comeuppance. It was just, even though, um, you know, he could never truly pay for what he did. Um, for some reason there was something in me that, that felt that a little bit. I think at times he does come off as a sympathetic character, um, particularly in that, in that bank scene that you mentioned, um, that, that's tough to watch, uh, you know, that his daughter just kind of, she turns her back on him and, and she's not going, and I understand her point of view as well. Um, but, you know, I keep going back to that final scene of the film where he says, you know, leave the door open. I, I like it opened a little bit. You know, we have this guy who is completely alone um, and, and he dies alone. He dies completely on his own. And um, at the end of his life, there's, you know, maybe this is the big, Thing that Scorsese is trying to, to articulate that, you know, we only have each other in terms of ourselves. Um, even at, at a certain point, even family um, can only go on the journey with us so far. Um, yeah. But we, we take all of, you know, that journey is, is completely um, individual in, in that sense. There's something to me um, personally that's very tragic about that, um, knowing that, you know, um, that we die alone, regardless if family is around the room or not. It's an experience you can only um, experience um, individually. Right. Yeah, I think the, the part of the genius of the film is in those moments, like Andrew was saying, that last shot. We can feel for him despite the monster that we've seen because we're not him. And and that is that becomes starkly realistic to us as we are we do have a capacity for empathy regardless of what we've seen where he was the other end of the spectrum he he mostly emphasized empathized with himself when he had to account to Hoffa's wife when he had to account to his daughter when he had to account to his other daughter when she said dad we were scared of what you would do you weren't protecting us we were scared that's when he feels it but no other time yeah even when he admitted to the one guy hey that was a bad hit mm -hmm. that was wrong I shot the guy right in the face yeah yeah, it's like the yeah. I, I Andrew, I, I share your uh, your feelings about the last you know the last shot, the last scene where the you know make sure you keep the door open. Uh, we got to remember that uh, he asked the priest, uh, or the priest told him that it's it's almost Christmas. Yeah, and there the guy, you know, there he is, um, and you know the door is open. It's you know figuratively and actually kind of literally that you know it's, it's the hope that maybe his daughter will will come, but we we know uh, she's she's not coming, you know. And uh, getting to your point, Walt, I mean, I think there, you know, for every parent, there is that sort of anxiety. Uh, obviously, um, there aren't many men like, uh, like Frank Sharon, you know, but it kind of goes to show that there are things that you can do to, you know, decimate relationships, you know, past the point of forgiveness. Uh, there are, in most relationships, unpardonable sins that will you know that there's a point there's a point we, we, we if you go past it there's just there's just not going any you know not going back and when you finally discover that uh man i really screwed this up it it's too late it was too I, late 
to I it. think that's, that, that, that's a, a great point for me um, in, in, in rethinking this film, right? This is, this is where the tragedy in the Greek sense for me comes in, that Scorsese is absolutely um, examining how, how far does a father have to go to alienate his children without, you know, abusing them or, or in any which way, right? Because for all intents and purposes, he was a good father, other than he was a killer. Um, you know, he, he treated his children well, but he had this other life that, that he could not keep from them. And yeah. to me, that's, that's the tragic aspect. Yeah, he was, he was a great provider, no doubt. Yeah. You know, they, right. they, they didn't want for anything. And, uh, <clears throat> but, you know, parenthood is, is more than providing. And, yeah. uh, so that's did. the scene too where they're bowling and his daughter several times scenes they show she does not like um Hoffa. joe pesci yeah she likes hoffa yeah and you know pesci does, he doesn't have any kids i don't think that is shown in the film right and you know he's kind of between those two you know hoffa the family man buffalino 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 the, yeah the crime boss and he's right in the middle right. for me those were the most uncomfortable scenes to watch because I thought something was going to something bad was going to happen out of those, and I think that's a testament to Pesci's brilliance as an actor oh, that he could so play that up in in such a non-Pesci way, and 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 at least for me, make me cringe inside like, oh, this is coming, and it never, you know, it never, it never got to that point. Right. Yeah. His, his daughter. His daughter was. Uh, she was able to detect monsters. Yeah. She she had that. Uh, that, that sense. And she, uh, you know, she, she saw, and she was, she direct, judged correctly that, uh, at least as it's portrayed in this film, Hoffa was, uh, in his heart of hearts, a, a good man and, uh, who did brutal things, but, uh, he was by and large a loyal man, corrupt. Obviously he was, comes off as corrupt in the film. He wasn't, you know, glamorized at all, but, uh, but at, you know, in his heart, he was, uh, someone who, um, who cared about his cause, you know, power hungry, of course, but uh, he was loyal and um, he, yet he was very, very principled. Uh, however, she sensed correctly that uh, Russell Buffalino was, was a monster. And uh, I think that comes out for me in a few scenes where, uh, particularly at the end, um, for me, one of the most powerful, it's a very short scene, but a very powerful scene uh, when, the, when they're in the prison. Oh, I know what you're going to, I love this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just a. Uh, again, it's it's one of those. Um, it's a scene that echoes other scenes in the film where they're having a sit down and literally breaking bread, dipping it into into the wine, and uh, but here they are in prison, um, breaking bread, dipping it into uh, into grape juice, and uh, you know they get to talking and they start reminiscing. You know, they're they're looking at everything backward. You know, mm -hmm. and. Um, it reminds me of the quote, uh, Andrew, you might know who said this, uh, life is something that uh, must be lived forward, but it's only understood backward. Yeah. <laughs> and here they are uh, looking back on their life. And you would think that at that time, so close to death, so weak, uh, Joe Pesci's character clearly has some health issues. They start talking about uh, Hoffa. And uh, he comes up in conversation and, and Russell starts saying, you know, uh, he was a, he was a good guy, good family. But uh, when it comes down to it, you know, I chose us over him. And then he put the, 
you know, the declaration on the table, F them, you know, <laughs> when it comes down to it, F them. Uh, and it's, it's like his, you know, he showed some humanity there. And just when you think that he's, you know, going to soften and perhaps even regret, no, <laughs> no regrets, uh, F them. It you had know? to be done, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and Frank was just, he just sort of nodded, you know, he didn't have, he was still sitting at the table with his boss for all intents and purposes, you know? Do you think there's a little bit of cruelty there with, with Russell? And if it was Russell or, or somebody higher than Russell that, that had Frank do the, the job? Yeah. yeah, there's a reference line where he said, I had to put you into this, Frank, otherwise you would have tried to stop it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but I think, again, I think there is an unknown. Was, wasn't it Harvey Keitel's character who was really controlling Pesci or was that a Yeah, that's how I understood it. He was the bigger boss of, yeah. of, of, if not all of Philadelphia, then South Philly for sure. Right, right. Yeah, I felt, I that's perhaps one of the points in the film where I really kind of felt for Frank because, uh, you know, if Frank had any uh, true relationships in his life, it seemed it was with uh, yeah. with Jimmy Hoffa. Um, I think he generally cared about him, loved him. But then you ask yourself, well, did he really, you know? Um, I mean, it's it's such a interesting contradiction. You know, you know, I think that's what makes really honestly great characters, great stories when you have these two really opposing forces within a, within the same character. And, you know, I, I believe he loved Jimmy Hoffa, but once again, how how much can you love someone if you are you know, going to follow those orders. And so it, uh, I, I really kind of felt, felt for him there, but then I was angry at him, you know? And by the way, I, I, I just love sometimes how, and, uh, you can kind of go down the list here, but in a lot of Scorsese films, just the way he executes certain characters, it's very interesting. Some characters are executed very dramatic and, uh, I don't know, with lots of technique and sometimes musical accompaniment. But then sometimes they're just killed. You know, um, I, I can think of um, Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas. You know, you, if, when you remember when you first saw that, it's like, whoa. They walk into a room and he gets shot in the head immediately. Yeah. No music, no swelling, no suspense. Bam, dead. Um, it's kind of in a similar way how it happened with, uh, with Hoffa's character. I mean, you kind of saw it coming, but there was no music that there was no, you know, not that Scorsese would stoop to this, but no slow motion or interesting angle. It was just bam in a, a morbid groan. A little like, noise that Pacino makes when he, when the first bullet goes in, I, that, that haunted me. Yep. That's what happens. I guess I hear that that's um, when you, when you die suddenly, whether it's that blunt force trauma, your body just sort of lets out a last, protest mm -hmm. and that's that's what happened and uh um then he went to the you know then he went to the uh, the morgue and uh <laughs> it was incinerated and that's that you know kind of uh yeah anticlimactic from all of the the mythology that surrounds hoffa's death uh yeah. you know what happened to his body well he, he's underneath the end zone at, at giant stadium or, or or something a little bit more romantic than than how he actually ended up. But for me, it's much more plausible how they did it in the film. Yeah. And he sensed it, he, he, he smelt it. Yeah. He didn't, uh, he smelt a little bit too late, but yeah. 
he uh, he didn't get to where he was unless he had those instincts. But right. um, again, he was fooled in the end. Yeah, I, and and it's you know it's I, I keep coming back to tragedy, and I'm I'm now switching from Greek tragedy to more Shakespearean. But it's the betrayal of a friend, right? That in the end, it's the friend who betrays him. That's true. That's right. Yeah, it's excruciating. It's a theme that I I find compelling, and uh, it's it's so counterintuitive to what I think. What most people think is is loyalty is one of the most important you know attributes, and um, he didn't really he didn't really have it. And in, in, in Hoffa, as as portrayed in this film, would have uh, would have had loyalty all the way to the end for Frank if the tables were were turned. Yeah. Very, very sad. Um, I don't know. I, one thing I wanted to mention and bring up, I, th I thought this film was very funny. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of the darkness and, and horrid, but uh, I don't know. There were moments in this, I, don't, I mean, more than moments. There were, there were scenes and um, characters that you can almost put, you know, portray this, call this a, on some level a dark comedy. I mean, I, I laughed out loud at, at many scenes that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the surface, if you were to describe the scene, the setting, the it would not be funny, but it, it, right. it kind of is. Some great I, 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 I'm thinking about that great scene with Harvey Keitel when they bring uh, uh, De Niro into that scene and, you know, do you know who owns the laundry? Uh, uh, and, and, and De Niro goes, who? I do. Okay, who? And no, no, I do. <laughs> I own it, you know, Harvey Keitel plays that, you know, I, I think if I had one criticism of this film, I, I would have given Harvey Keitel, I would have developed his character a little bit more. Um, and, you know, it's a minor criticism, um, but I would have liked to have seen more of Harvey Keitel because I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he's such a good actor. Yeah. I'm, I, I, underutilized. I would venture to say that there's probably a lot of his, a lot of, a lot of his scenes are on the cutting room floor. Yeah. They had to edit it down, but yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I, I love the, uh, yeah, I have to get the character list out, but uh, the, uh, the boss who was um, a prison mate at one point with uh, Pro? Yes. Yeah. Little Pro? Pro, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, who shows up to the meeting wearing shorts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's I mean, Pro, I think. Yeah. Oh, it seems hilarious. You know, I, I love how, uh, you know, Hoffa just the, the fact that he was so uh, religiously devoted to the idea of being prompt and on time. Yeah. Um, at the beginning, before we actually meet Jimmy Hoffa, um, when uh, De Niro's character is is brought in, you know, because he was suspected of uh, conspiring to steal, you know, truckloads of of meat, uh, he's brought into uh, the lawyer uh, yeah. Ray Romano's character, uh, and they're he, you know they're asking him. Um, you know, these questions. And, and one of the questions is, uh, have you ever been late? You know, it, you know, the, he was basically, uh, asking him, you know, grounds, grounds for firing. Here are the grounds for firing. You have to answer these questions. Honestly, yeah. the first, the very first one was, uh, have you ever been late to work? <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's, it's a Jimmy Hoffa kind of, uh, uh, little quirk there. And then when, you know, he shows up late, the pro character at that, uh, that Florida meeting, it's, it's absolutely hilarious. Shows up. My, for me, the scene, all, all of his humor, I, I, I the humor really stood out the second time I viewed the film because the first time, you know, Scorsese imbues it all with a sense of dread. Like there's mm -hmm. so much subtext to what these guys say to each other. But the scene that um, really makes me 
it laugh was when they're driving to kill Jimmy Offa and they have the argument over the fish that the guy had in the back seat of the car. <laughs> and even then there's an element of danger because De Niro thinks he might be being set up for a hit. So he doesn't want to sit in the front, but then they, the guy just won't let it go. Uh-huh. I want to understand this in case I got to explain it to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Jimmy Hoffa comes in the car and uh, of course he's the, he's the expert when it comes to everything. Yeah. Right? So he's like, you know, you, you, you want to put your fish in the trunk or whatever, or wrap it in paper. He, he knows, he knows all about it. Right. And then um, Hoffa says to, uh, what was his name? Uh, Sally Bugs. He says, Can you see through those glasses? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Then I love to see, you know, the, the, like going back to the Florida meeting with, uh, with pro there, you know, they, they start arguing about, you know, what's considered late. <laughs> 10 minutes or 15 yeah yeah it's just um it's it's and then we have you know i think jimmy hoff is a character he's, he's kind of uh he's very much a comic comic relief in a way he doesn't even want to be at that meeting in the first place he resents it so no. already he's going in with that attitude uh-huh yeah yeah i, I think um personally this is one of pacino's i i know his performance is bombastic but it's also very nuanced whereas i think he had kind of gotten into self-parody for a little bit yeah after the booyah role but um this really brought him back i mean yes this was a bombastic performance but he he played those notes so nicely you could see the ambition and the thoughts that were driving the man oh yeah yeah especially when he's taken aside by russell at that uh, that event yeah and for the last time, he's trying to plead with them to uh, to comply. And uh, the way Pacino portrays that, you can just tell that within his character, he was uh, Russell was asking for the the impossible, you know, yeah. and he was not going to bend uh, for anyone, even if it meant getting killed over. He just wasn't going to be told what to do. Yeah, this is this is the um, the example of a great actor in the hands of a great director. Because Pacino's last several movies have been awful. Um, you know, his performance has, hasn't been great. But yet his t- made-for-TV movies, um, like Angels in America and Kravorkian, and even the Phil Spector film for HBO, were, were really great performances, yeah, absolutely. I think. Yep, definitely. Hey, you're right. Oh, yeah, he's on that, that um, series Hunter, uh, The Hunters. Or on Hunters, Amazon. But I can't stand the series. I didn't like it, but his yeah. performance was really good at it. Yeah. Yeah, he was bombastic, but that's that's the character. It, you know, Scorsese cast him cast him perfectly for that, and uh, um, I bought into it. I bought into it. Um, the scene where he uh, sees the flag at half mast after the at the uh, JFK assassination, and he's he's outraged by that, and yeah. orders it right back up, and says uh, he's quoted for saying, uh, you know, um, now Robert Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy is it's just a, just another lawyer. <laughs> yeah. But you never saw Pacino on screen. You saw Hoffa. And that's, yeah. you know, that's really, he disappeared into the character. Really played to his strengths. Like you, I agree, who said it, the director in the hands yeah. of a great director. Yeah. And I think Pacino really needed this role because, um, you know, uh, his, his acting has not been great. And I, I'm a huge fan of Pacino. Yeah. So some of his last couple of movies have been very painful to watch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then you have uh, Anna Paquin, am I pronouncing that correctly, who plays the older Peggy, uh, yeah. the daughter, uh, in a film that's certainly not populated with many uh, female characters of note. Um, 
she definitely gives a very powerful performance with very little dialogue, you know, uh, kind of getting back to her. Uh, were there any moments that you felt, um, you felt for her character that you, that you found pretty uh, compelling when it came to her character and her relationship with, uh, with Frank as a, as an older woman or a young, young woman? Well, yeah, I think, um, and credit to Anna Paquin, but also the young actors that played the, the character, we see the character age distinctly more than the others, you know, and uh, from a girl to a young woman. And again, not given a lot of dialogue, more actually more dialogue in the younger character than the older. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, uh, um, the, just the, you could, you could read her fear and her anger in the way that she looked at her father. Yep. Especially when, uh, again, most of her, the older character, you know, not much dialogue at all. Right. Until finally, and I think it makes it more impactful, the fact that there wasn't much dialogue until the scene where um, uh, Frank is on the phone. Uh, no. It, okay. So Frank is asked by his wife if uh, he's been in touch with um, Hoffa's wife. I, I, forget her, I forget her name. Um, and he said, you know, no, I haven't gotten a, around to calling her. And suddenly, out of nowhere, if you remember, she says, why? And it's almost like right there, you know that she, she knows something. Yeah. Do you think at the, you think of that moment, are we meant to think that she is certain that he has something to do with it? Yeah. I, this is, yeah. yeah, I this is a, this is a girl. I, I think it's been set up from the very beginning as to be a powerful observer, right? From those those childhood moments that we see her watching everything. This is a kid that doesn't miss a beat. Um, and I know this film has taken a lot of hits because of of the betrayal or the lack of betrayal of women. Um, but I do think that the women that are involved are those statements are really powerful. And they're not always um, speaking statements. There's a lot of ways to act. Um, reading lines is just one of them. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, the female characters, although not as developed as they might be, um, are still powerful characters. Yeah, and they, um, I, I remember reading a piece on this where they, you know, first of all, she defends her role in the film. Yeah. And, and secondly, they said we, we picked Anna because of her ability to act without words. Right. Yeah. No, I think it was a fantastic choice. I mean, a lot of dialogue doesn't, necessarily equal significance. Uh, I think in her case, less was more. And uh, her character, her performance is of someone who is, ver is good, virtuous from what we know. And uh, in a film that's populated with, you know, horrible people. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of strength there. I, I kind of take the opposite point of view. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a very, for me, that heartbreaking moment when she, you know, she calls him out basically, you know, I mean, she, she all but calls him out. Right. And, uh, you know, he, he, he has to lie to his daughter. I mean, he lies directly to his daughter's face yeah. about, um, about everything pretty much. Right. Um, she confronts him and he can't, he can't, you know, he can't tell the truth, you know, and that's, and so the rejection of him is something that he entirely earned. Mm -hmm. And um, that's his, uh, it, going back to the Greek tragedy thing, if he, if he does have a 
tragic flaw, what would it, what would it be? Frank. Frank. Yeah. I mean, can we narrow it down to one thing like a, like we would with let's say Oedipus or <laughs> Lear, or is it, uh, is it too complex for that? I mean, uh, is subservience a flaw <laughs> in this case? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if we can narrow it down to one particular aspect. I think there's a lot in his character that is, that is flawed. Um, but isn't that what being human is? I mean, we are flawed as, as, as a species uh, in a way. And, and Frank is just a manifestation of, of not everything that we do, but certainly things that we are capable of. Yeah. And he just does those things that, that, that we're capable of, but most of us do not act upon. Uh, and I really believe that. I think we're all capable of, of doing evil. We just don't do it. Um, in a way, I, maybe I reserve the right to change my mind on that. But sure, you know, sure. There, there are aspects of, of characters in, that are human that, you know, this shows Frank is incredibly human in a way. Sure. Um, and his daughter actually comes off as kind of less human because she's less understanding in a way. And, and that is in no way a criticism of how she feels. Yeah. Um, it, it's more of an observation of that, that relationship dynamic that's going on. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I, I agree. I mean, we do have the capability of, of being evil. Um, yeah. Fortunately, we're, most of us are raised to, uh, <laughs> to keep far from that. But um, if we didn't have that choice, then doing good wouldn't, wouldn't mean as much, would it? Right. Um, right. And uh, hold on a second. Another thing popped up. Can you still hear me? Yes. All right. Good. All right. Yeah. So, um, Okay, so yeah, I agree. I think it's more complex than kind of narrowing it down to one um, tragic flaw. But one thing that kind of sticks out for me, and I think one of you pointed this out earlier, um, is when he's sitting down, I think for the very first time uh, with Russell at, uh, you know, it's, again, it's one of those restaurant scenes and you might be drinking wine and dipping the bread in it, I'm not sure. But I think it's, it's one of the very first real conversations that they have other than the... Uh, the truck repair uh, scene. And uh, he's talking about his time in the military and uh, he's going on about, you know, uh, you know, surviving. And he, he comes to uh, a point where he starts saying, you know what, I, I started to think to myself, you know, um, effort is basically what, what it came down to. You know, um, um, I just didn't, I stopped caring or I stopped, uh, you know, I started living kind of like for the day, surviving for the day. Um, and I think, I think actually Russell's character did say, he said something in Italian, uh, and then he, which basically translates to effort, you know, and I, I think that might've been, um, kind of his approach to life where it's, um, just, just living life. So, um, I'm trying to think of the term, but, um, it's kind of like a, a day by day existence living to survive mm-hmm. and, and kind of having a, a, a reckless approach to the point where, um, again, human life doesn't necessarily have, you know, have much worth or value, even his own. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's, it's, it's really interesting that there, that scene that you're referring to is, is played out where they're both speaking Italian, right? So it's where they kind of come together for the first time. Yeah. So really basically through this conversation we're having tonight, for me, the film is all about friendship. So if we're talking about the tragic flaw, then it's about friendship 
and the ability for us to really connect on that kind of level. Um, if you listen to the dialogue, Pesci always says, we have a problem with our friend. Everything is our friend, right? Um, and so this is really about the politics of friendship and, and what that means. And maybe Frank is somebody who is really incapable of, of being someone else's friend. I wonder if a boss higher than, this is just total hypothetical, if a boss higher than Russell came to Frank and said, you have to eliminate Russell, yeah. would, he, would he do it? Oh, yeah, he would, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, to me, again, and I, I made this point earlier, I, Frank never left the war. Yeah. And he right. just, and, and he, it, it, he had the relationship with Russell the same way a loyal soldier would have a relationship with his commanding officer. There's a, there's a love and a respect. Cause even in jail, even when the power was all gone, he was still deferential yeah. to Russell. Um, yeah. And that, that's not saying there wasn't also love and friendship there, but it, it was born from that hierarchy of command that he, never i think he never left and that's that's exactly precisely my point if there is that hierarchy command is true friendship possible because for me friendship is on equal terms right it's on an equal playing field yeah. so if there is a hierarchy then, then then there's always going to be and we know this because we've all been in those situations with our own social circle there's always a kind of dominant personality uh, at play and we see how that kind of plays out and but with this it's those those lines are very established who is going to be the leader, who is going to be the follower. And it's clear that Frank can only be a leader up to a certain point. Right. Not to mention, uh, you know, the hierarchy had to do with uh, whether or not you were Italian as well. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Frank um, obviously was the Irishman and uh, he, could not, he couldn't even be a made, made man. Right. You know, he's so a hit man, yeah. Yeah, he's the associate. So uh, he was always going to be... Uh, held at, at that level. So another thing I wanted to bring up kind of switching gears a little bit, but you know, using um, the Irishman as kind of like our springboard. I'm, I'm, I'd like to bring up kind of like the ethics of uh, CG technology, computer generated imagery, which this film relied upon greatly. And if that technology was not um, possible or, or, or something that was in the budget, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to happen. You know, we have, uh, we have characters who are, what, all three of them are in their 70s, right? Mm -hmm. um, at least, you know, um, I think they're pushing 80 at this point. So you have um, three central characters who are, um, who had to play, I think, at his, at his earliest age. I think um, Frank Sharon was in his 30s or 40s or something yeah. like that. So um, if they were younger men, if they were in their 40s, obviously you can age them fine. Um, but it took computer-generated imagery and... Walt mentioned earlier that this was a stumbling block for some people. Um, for me, it wasn't. I don't. I don't get hung up on that. You know, I believe me. I could point out why it's why it's flawed if I really want. I mean, I you know, for example, you have uh, a forty-year-old version of uh, of Frank's character. You know, and the the face is um, smoothed out, but you can't. Um, you can't necessarily alter the the frame or the movements. I mean, maybe you can, but they didn't. So you have uh, Frank Sheeran's character beating up the the guy at the uh, at the corner store. Yeah, and uh, he looked like he was sore as sore as hell doing it. <laughs> he looked like <laughs> an old man doing it. Yeah, when he climbed the rocks to throw the gun in the river too. Yeah. Can, yes, yes. Oh yeah, that's he how I climb rocks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When he was throwing uh, the guns into the bay. Uh, yeah. He, 
he looked like he had uh, a Tommy John surgery the, the week before. <laughs> um, but again, I'm I'm okay with that. It's I'm 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 fine with suspending my disbelief. Um, but then you know I kind of want to bring it over to other things too. I mean, sooner or later, and it's already happened. I in, on some level, we're going to have computer generated technology. Um, bringing old characters to uh, dead characters to life again. Um, We've already done it. We've seen it with Peter Cushing in, in one of the Star Wars. Episodes. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I, I don't know about with you. I, I, okay. Well, I, I heard they're doing with the, if they've done it or it's it's another film with James Dean as a character. I heard that too. Yeah. yeah I I can't speak much to it whether it's a film that's out or not, and I'm sure someone that's, that's blasphemous. Someone listening to this will will know exactly. But um, how long before we have the, I don't know, the, the Marlon Brando estate um, releasing his likeness yeah. for, for a new Godfather film? Um, no. Are we going to see another Bo, a Bogart movie, Casablanca 2? I don't know. Uh, a Beautiful Friendship. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a part of me who would love to say um, I'm ethically against it. And I, I, on the one hand, I am. But there's another part of me who says, I'm fascinated by that idea. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was pretty impressed and interested in Peter Cushing in the, uh, in the Rogue One film. I thought that was pretty interesting. Carrie Fisher's character, um, Princess Leia, was, at, was there at the end. So I'm more against it than I'm for it. Um, I don't want to say, I I say I'm for it at all. I'm just kind of curious about it. There's like a curiosity about it in, in, in my mind. Um, for example, if, if, if the Beatles toured, if, the, if their holograms toured, I, there's, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to buy a ticket to that show. <laughs> right. you know? So I, I guess let's starting with the, uh, the technology used for the Irishman. How did you feel about it? And, and, and what do you think about the ethics of, uh, of where CG is kind of taking us right now? I, I had an issue with, with De Niro's eyes. Um, I couldn't get past that. Uh, and I just watched it a second time. And, and again, I was fixated with the, the, the artificial aspect of his eyes. Um, you know, beyond the movements, and, 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 and that seemed a little mechanical to me, but it was the eyes. Now, I, like you, I can get past that. I can, I can suspend disbelief and, and move past that. Um, but I did have an issue with it. And that, that, was, that was a major problem I had uh, with this particular film. Yeah, I mean, I when they use CG in superhero movies and things like that, for me, it it takes away any real stakes in it. I, I can see a Thor gets punched a thousand times by the Incredible Hulk, and I know he's not feeling any real pain, right. and it never seems to have do any lasting damage. Um, but but using it like this, uh, to me, I mean, again, yeah, you have to suspend disbelief. Um, I was watching, actually watching um, Stagecoach the other, uh, not Stagecoach, I'm sorry, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance the other day. And, you know, they had to significantly age and de-age Jimmy Stewart in that. And mm -hmm. it was a little artificial, but it worked. The story was good. And the same thing here. I, I got distracted a few times. I'm like, oh, yeah, De Niro's very old. He always holds his mouth like this yeah. now. Um, <laughs> he didn't do it as pronounced when he was younger, but they, uh, but to me, for this film, if I wanted to see De Niro and Pesci and, and Pacino telling the story, I mean, De Niro and Pesci, then they had to, there had to be some artificiality to it. And I, I was able to get past it. But as far as bringing folks back to life, I mean, you're talking about James Dean, the Beatles, 
these are people that had incredible control over their performance and their legacy in a sense. I mean, I know Dean died young, but they would be appalled to think that they didn't have that kind of control over how they're going to be used. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I have to think that the only reason their estate would agree to this is because there's money in it for the estate. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no, for me, there's no artistic value in that. Sure. Yeah, there's technological value, but not there's artistic. Yeah, and it's interesting to see what they could do. But, you know, it's the same as, as, as seeing Carrie Underwood sing with Elvis, right? And, and, yeah. and all of those kind of duets with a hologram. It's the, you know, I have, I have profound issues with that. In this, too, I was reading that they didn't do the traditional dots on the face, but that they also, the, there was a lot of um, physical coaches with the actors to say, you moved too old for this. Really? Yeah. There was a scene where Hoffa was getting up out of a chair when he was supposed to be younger, and they made him do it, I don't know how many times. Huh. And they, they even tried to, so there's still acting involved. Yeah. Um, and I know you, you can say some CGI actors like Andy Serkis as Gollum right. and, you know, act, but... You know, I don't know. It's it, the line becomes blurred, and and they're alive, so they have control over whether they take that part or not. Yeah. Um, but somebody like James Dean, who has has been dead for decades, um, you know, their estate legally they have the right to do that, but um, ethically, do they? I think that's the question, Bill, that you're asking. Uh, you know, the original question. Yeah, I mean, it just it presents the uh, filmmaking is going. It's 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 going in so many different directions right now. And uh, that seems to be one of them. And I don't even know if it's a question of if it's, eth you know, it's, it's not a question of if it's, it's when, I mean, right. it, it seems to be happening. And yeah, I, certainly as, as the generations kind of go by, you know, they're not going to have necessarily as much loyal, certain estates aren't going to have as much loyalty as um, previous generations who actually interacted and, had relationships with the, uh, uh, the, 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 the legends, the celebrities. So. Right. And how long before we see Bogart selling Chevrolets, you know? Oh, uh, where does it end? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's disturbing. Um, but yeah, I, I think the way it was done in the Irishman, even though, um, it wasn't flawless, you know, there, there were, scenes where you were reminded that, yeah, you are watching uh, yeah. a CG effect here. Um, it wasn't overdone. In fact, uh, there's a, there's a, wish I can give you the exact, uh, maybe I'll, I'll email this out, but there's a, a YouTube video where another company did the same effect. I'm not sure what technology they use, but they, they basically uh, redid what was done in the Irishman in some scenes, hmm. uh, claiming that they could do it better and honestly when i saw it they they aged or they de-age i should say the characters better than what's yeah. uh, in, in the film currently so when you there see was, what's that there were two uh superhero movies where they de-aged kurt russell for the beginning of guardians of the galaxy 2 and i forget which film robert downey jr de-aged and it was flawless yeah it was stunning i mean i actually thought that they somehow dug up old footage of kurt russell um, really? for that scene. And, and if you ever get a chance, I'll show you that clip. I, it, was I know you don't, it was really amazing. How they it was one with Will Smith too, right? Where, he, where there's a younger version of himself. Yeah, as that, yeah, that's right. The problem is Will Smith still looks the same. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't, it didn't take much. I don't think. Yeah. But, um, yeah, guys, well, um, I, well, I just, I wonder when 
actors now are going to have to say, leave in their wills. Don't. Yeah. You can never recreate me once I'm dead. I'm yep. sure that's taking place now um, with, with, with a lot of things. Yeah. I think though, because so CGI is supposed to be this like grand golden way to show us things that we've never seen before. But think about the films that were great because they had to deal with their limitations like Jaws or the birds. Right. You know, they had to work around flawed technology and it turns out that contributed to the making of masterpieces. Right. Especially what Hitchcock and Wells did with lighting alone. Um, you know, and the German expressionists, you know, yeah. with, with very little money, but with great lighting technique. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think there's something within you. Um, you may, you know, even people who don't necessarily uh, care or, or, or know necessarily what they're looking at. There's something within the, the mind that knows that, that something's fake when you're watching it. You know, um, you don't necessarily know it, but you feel it in some way. It feels synthetic to you somewhere in your mind. So um, I think people get more tasteful with it. It seems, uh, you know, for the Star Wars film, for example, obviously they use a ton of CG, but they um, have been, to my knowledge, been kind of using a lot of real uh, sets and, and physical uh, elements as well. So rather than, you know, the prequels where it's just actors in front of a blue screen and right. it ends up looking like a video game, which we should do. We should, uh, I think we should do perhaps a, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Star Wars prequel podcast at some point. <laughs> I think I'll be sick that day. <laughs> I, I can't stand those films. I like things in them, but. Uh. Yeah, yeah. That actually, you're right. That would mean rewatching them. And, uh, you know, yeah, that's true. So scratch that idea. So I'd rather watch Red Letter Media deconstruct them than actually watch the films themselves. <laughs> If you haven't seen that, have you seen that, those, Andrew? The Red Letter Media? No. <laughs> they're pretty profane, but they're pretty good analytical deconstructions of those movies. Real? Okay, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. All right, guys. I think on that note, we'll, uh, we'll bring this uh, quarantine special to an end. Um, right. Hopefully, <laughs> I think uh, we'll be able to do a few more of these now that we're sort of confined, and uh, we'll hopefully be able to do these more often. Um, but, uh, thanks guys for, uh, showing up virtually, uh, Walt and, uh, Andrew, it's been great. Thank you. So, um, yeah, uh, this is the classroom critics podcast. If you could, uh, please chime in and, uh, let us know, um, what you think about the Irishman. If you want to chime in with any of your opinions, please go on to our Facebook page and, um, perhaps rate us on, uh, iTunes. And uh, actually this is going to be our very first, uh, video cast as well. We have a, uh, a video file which we're going to upload on YouTube. So we're hoping that uh, you'll get to finally see us in our glory. No CGI here. No CGI <laughs> whatsoever. Works at all. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and please let us know. Um, please join in the discussion. We were trying to get this, uh, you know, we're trying to get discussion rolling on some of these classic films that we're, uh, we're talking about, and we'd love to hear from you. So uh, with that, um, thank you for. Uh, for listening and watching and we'll uh we'll see you on the next episode take care <laughs>